0: Veterans Day is this week, and so uh, please take time to do that. And also keep in mind, uh, so many of us have grown up where it it was like uh, veterans always uh, seemed to be older, right? An older generation of people. It's true. It's not that way anymore, Okay, there are a lot of young ones that have returned from their service in various parts of this country, and a lot of them are struggling right now due to recent events, and this isn't a political thing, this isn't an anything thing, this isn't a religious thing, this is the right thing to thank those people. And so please do that, wherever you're at, I don't, don't, we're a church and we're thanking you, absolutely, but maybe you own a business or maybe you work at a business where there's many veterans or one, doesn't matter, take time this week and thank them for their service, would you? It's the right thing to do, absolutely. And remind them, that song we were just singing, remind them they are fearfully and wonderfully made as well. Whatever they're going through in life, remind them of that. Because it's the only thing that can help heal whatever wounds they might have internally. So keep that in mind. I'm gonna take a second and open with a word of prayer for those that have served. Father God, uh, you know what it's like to lose a son, for sure. Father, you know the battles in our lives you know the things going on in people's lives. You know those that are hurting in our midst in this room today even. Father, we want to take just a moment as a congregation and lift up those that have served our country. Father, our country is not perfect anybody that claims that it is. They don't understand life. Father, we're all fallen. We make mistakes, absolutely. But Father, we want to lift up those that have, have set those things aside and have chosen to serve this country in the ways that they have. Father, so many are doing great, absolutely, but Father, there's so many today that are struggling, that are hurting. Some know you, absolutely they do, and we pray for an extra measure of your spirit in their lives to encourage and guide them in the moments they're going through right now. But Father, so many of those that served, both old and young, don't have a relationship with you. And that, on this day, is what we pray for, their salvation. Father, for them to come to know you in the peace that only you can offer. Father, in this Veterans Day, let us all, let us all seek someone out and just thank them for their service. Ask them if they're doing all right and mean it. And Father, if there's an opportunity to share with them the gospel, I pray that you open that door. It is something we could offer back to those that have served for sure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've come a long way already in the life Of Jesus, at least in years, right? We've come 30 years already in the life of Jesus. We studied about his miraculous birth. We've studied about John's miraculous birth. We've taken a tiny glimpse that we'll mention here again in a moment into the childhood of Jesus in that moment when he's 12. Then immediately after that, Luke shifts gears completely and and talks about Jesus' baptism, which we talked about last week and the importance of that moment in his ministry. And then he goes all the way to his family tree through his mother. Mother's side, all the way back to David, and then beyond that, all the way back to Adam and God himself, placing Jesus directly in the line of the throne of King David on both his mother's and his adopted earthly father's side for the king of Israel. But also notice that Jesus is like Adam. You might have heard him called the second Adam before because Jesus is a direct son of God. Paul writes... In 1 Corinthians, these words, chapter 15, beginning in verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, that's us. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Ah, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's also you. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. You see, the first Adam, if you've never really completely absorbed this and thought about it, you really should. Adam, the first man, was perfect. He was as perfect as Jesus. He was absolutely perfect creation. He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't God. I didn't say that. But in his being, he was perfect. He was sinless. He was exactly what God created him to be. And he created him to walk with God forever. But Adam, of his own free will on our behalf, chose to rebel, to sin against God And disobey. And that act left us, left man separated from God. Jesus, the second Adam, has now come. Jesus also bears the full image of God, perfect image of God, as he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus has a second quality, and that is that he bears the fullness of man because he was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, now fully man and fully God, has set out to redeem all of mankind by perfecting the way of man as only he could. It's an incredible timeline that we've studied already. We got one little glimpse into the childhood of Jesus as he studies at the temple a little earlier in Luke, at age 12. Have you ever considered, okay, so you get this moment in Jesus' life, you see he's getting it. He's asking questions, he's learning, he's doing good stuff. What happened the next 18 years? What did he do till age 30? How did he prepare for that moment when his ministry would begin? Now, we know that he likely learned the trade of carpentry from his adopted father, Joseph. But what was Jesus like in Sunday school, right? What was he like at youth group or at church camp? Okay, they didn't have those things, but you get the picture, right? Was his, was when they asked a question, he was like, pick me, pick me, pick me. Was, it, was that Jesus? Or, or did he kind of sit back and just kind of help guide his friends? Because yes, Jesus had friends. He had peers. Did he guide them in the truth and help share with them the right answers so that they would learn more? Can't you see him just gently correcting Those people, as they would answer questions and maybe not quite have things theologically correct? Can you see him asking questions and listening to answers of the teachers, and then as they would explain, ask for further clarification in a way that helped point them in the right direction as well? As we read later on in Luke, we'll learn that Jesus is often confronted by and confronts religious leaders and teachers of the law who are trying to catch him in his teachings, in his words, or disapprove of what he's doing and saying. Growing up, Jesus had watched these teachers. He'd spent time with these teachers. He saw how they taught. He heard what they taught. He watched. He watched carefully how they treated people. You know Jesus was, because he still is, a great study, a student of character, of behavior. He's watching them, learning. And so then he makes accusations toward them later on in life. And in order for Jesus to be the one making the accusations, they must be true. They have to be founded in truth, meaning they weren't secondhand information. These were things that Jesus himself had observed, had seen. That's the only way he could confront them on it or else it would have been gossip and that would have been sin. You see, he had to observe it firsthand. These observations that he made as he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, as a student, he built trust with his peers and his teachers. He earned respect. He gained wisdom As a young man, he he would have done very much the same thing. He would have continued to ask questions. Absolutely, it's the best way to learn. But he probably answered some questions along the way and led a few conversations here and there. As an adult, he built trust with his clients, with his peers, with his community. He was a hardworking man. He worked as if working for the Lord. Yes, he did. Absolutely, he set the perfect example for us And as these relationships developed, I'm sure that people began to ask him a few questions about things now and again. And all the while he waited. And he waited for just that right moment for his redemptive purpose to begin. And we talked about why age 30 was so important last week in the message. So please go back and listen to that if you didn't catch it so you understand why it was age 30 that he began that ministry. Well, now John and Jesus began their ministries not too far apart. John began his ministry first and it lasted for about three years. So probably around age 27 or so, John the Baptist began his ministry. Three years, it lasted just like Jesus's. As Jesus prepared, as as John prepared that way, he opened the hearts and the minds of people to receive this incredibly new message that Jesus would be bringing Matthew and Mark record it this way. They said that people came from all over Judea to hear the message of John the Baptist. And many, not all, many repented and received that cleansing baptism of John. Now we're at the end, near the end of that three years of the ministry. And this is when Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Last week, we shared the significance of that moment. If you've had questions about baptism and things like that, don't ever hesitate to ask. Send me an email, call into the office, let's meet for lunch, we'll talk about it, the significance, how important this act is. If it wasn't important, Jesus wouldn't have demonstrated in the way that he did for us and then reiterated it time and time and time again. As we said last week, um, the water behind me is beautiful, it's crystal clear, we've resurfaced it, there's nothing floating in it anymore, and it's 85, Oh, trust me. Anyway, um, it is beautiful, and we just can't wait for there to be a line of people wanting to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And we know the day is coming, and I pray that you're praying with us that that day is coming sooner rather than later, maybe today. Why not today? This is when it all began. As Jesus comes up out of that water, the Spirit descends. God speaks himself. It's officially when God recognizes and authorizes everything that Jesus is about to undertake. God's voice allows everyone in attendance that day to be a part of that moment. And as I'm about to share, Jesus does what all of us would do. After a great moment like that, he completely disappears. (laughs) Wait a minute, for a month. Why? Well, when he returns from that month off, (laughs) everything begins very quickly to move. Jesus' ministry, as it gets started, one of the things that I've wondered is how many of those people that were there on that day to see Jesus' baptism followed him as he came back onto the scene a month later? How many people looked for him? How many people went to listen, to hear confirmation of what they observed on that day of his baptism. I wonder how many followed closely, just waiting to see how all of this played out. See, I don't think you could just forget what you heard and saw on that day. I know if it were me, I would have been very, very curious. But the thing that strikes me most about that moment is if I were the one doing this, and thank God I wasn't, because I'd have messed it all up. If I were the one doing this, that moment I got out of the baptism, I would have looked at John and said, Great job, buddy. You've done a wonderful job getting everything ready for me. Thank you. All right, everybody, here we go. And I would have started preaching and I would have started healing right there in that moment because right away you have a built-in audience. They literally just watched this dove. They saw this voice and the ministry of Jesus begins, right? No, no, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not how he did it. Instead, he had just a little bit more prep work to do. And that's why I joked he took the next month off because he definitely did not. Those 40 days were not easy. We're gonna be turning to three different places in scripture today. If you've got one of those Luke journals, um, please, please, please open that up to Luke chapter four, verse one is where we'll be. If you did not get one of those Luke journals, we have plenty. If you're visiting today and you have not got one of those yet, please get one from us. We run out, we'll order more. We have plenty, okay? Um, If you've got that, we will also be in two other places. So if you've got a spouse sitting next to you and you wanna pull out a Bible from under the chair, that would be great. If you got your phone, you could open it up to there. We're going to be in Deuteronomy mostly chapter 6, and we're also going to be in Psalm 91. Those are the three locations we'll be throughout the message today. Mostly in Luke chapter 4, but those other two we will reference later. And especially Psalm 91 is really important. We'll talk about why here in a minute. This is the, the famous temptation of Jesus as it's called. Now, I'm not sure what your opinion of temptation is in today's world. I really think, according to today's world, um, temptation doesn't really exist anymore, right? Because we're free to do anything we want to do, right? Seems like a great way to live. Do whatever you want. There's no matter, no cost to you. There's, there, they don't hurt anybody else. There's no pain. There's no suffering for the choices that you make. There's no physical consequences, right? There's no financial costs. For temptation and giving in. There's no relationships that are destroyed by such things, are there? Nah. No, now you you just be you. Live it up. You only live once. Not true. Shh. I'm just saying. I was gonna put this up on the screen, but I didn't. When you're buying your kids Christmas gifts this week. If you were in our uh, Worldview class, then you'll really appreciate this. I don't buy them the new Elsa blanket. The new Elsa blanket really big and boldly says, live your truth. Don't live your truth. It's a lie. <laughs> don't do it. Don't buy that for your kids. Don't even make them think that because it's not true. Don't live your truth. Live his truth alone. It's the only truth. Oscar Wilde, who I know many of you have no idea who it is, but some of you know the author from the 19th century. He once said it this way: I can resist everything but temptation. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Right? Jesus had one more step to take as he prepared for the mission that lied ahead. So here we go. John, or John, see, I did it. It's the first time today, though. I've, I've done well. Always flip those. John's my favorite, but I like Luke too. Anyway. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the river Jordan, did not start a ministry, did not begin a movement, no instead, he went all by himself with the Spirit out into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. <laughs> we'll comment on that in just a moment. But anyway, Jesus was often led by the Spirit. Throughout his ministry, it wasn't uncommon at all. He frequently removed himself from the crowds, from his disciples even, and he spent time alone with his father to pray. In this moment, the spirit is the one leading him into the wilderness, ultimately into this confrontation with Satan. The opening reveals several important Old Testament ties, and this is important. It's not arbitrary. It's essential to know the backstory. Jesus was not the first man. A lot of people said, well, of course, Jesus could not eat for 40 days. He was Jesus. No, actually, any man could not eat for 40 days. It's all possible for us. Our bodies are designed to do such crazy things, believe it or not. We can withstand that. Famously, in the Old Testament, Elijah, the prophet, was recorded in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 8, of observing a 40-day fast. Most famously, Moses in Exodus 34, 28, observed a 40-day fast, which was followed at the end by the receiving of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days. These 40 days absolutely helped symbolize something else From the Israelites' time in the wilderness, yes, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. A period of time where the Israelites gave in to virtually every temptation that came their way. We can contrast that with how Jesus handled similar temptations. There's another specific tie back to the Israelites. Every one of the passages that Jesus is about to quote comes from the book of Deuteronomy a book which was given to the Israelites during their exodus in the wilderness. Keep in mind, never forget, as we read, as we study, Luke's intended purpose for this letter, for this book, so that we would know the certainty of the things we have been taught. There is significance in the details, or he wouldn't have included them If we're searching, then these details, these details help tie the Old Testament and the New Testament back together and reveal how this is one big integrated story of God's love for us and his plan to restore our relationship with him. These are not isolated stories. They all tie together into this incredible story of God's love for all of us. But I do have to laugh at the last part of verse two. He was hungry. You think? I don't know why Luke had that necessary to put that. I don't know. So here's the temptation The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, You shall not live on bread alone. Sorry, carb lovers. It's not good to live on bread alone. I have a daughter. Trust me. I understand. She's in it. Interesting that the first thing the devil does is tempt Jesus with food because he's hungry right? A fleshly temptation. We've all been there before. Now here's the thing. Eating is not a sin, nor would it be a sin for Jesus to eat in this moment. The sin would be for Jesus to use his divine power, which he has just received from the Holy Spirit to provide his needs instead of allowing and trusting in his father to provide for him. In Exodus chapter 16 through 19, the Israelites were hungry. It's a very famous story. Shortly after they left Egypt, they're hungry in the wilderness, and it shows their incredible lack of faith in God who just freed them from captivity. But God was still faithful, and He provided for their needs. When you listen to the full passage from Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes, it's in Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 3. Be careful. Be careful to follow everything I've commanded you today so that you may live and increase and you may enter and possess the land that the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the full passage. So much greater in context, is it not? Now, as we get started, I've been there too. If you've ever read this part of the account of Jesus Christ, and you thought, you know what, I'm a little cynical here of Jesus being tempted. Come on. He was Jesus. Of course he resisted. I am not Jesus. How on earth does God expect me to fight against the things that are tempting me? Well, one of the greatest real life applications for what Luke shares here with us is not the what, it's the how. How did Jesus, the method that Jesus used to fight against temptation, What does Jesus do? He immediately goes directly to the word of God and quotes from there. What do we do when we're tempted? Do we directly go to the word of God to battle? I don't. I should, but I don't. What do we humans do? Well, I can't speak for all of us, but I'm guessing a few of us are in the same boat. Here's what we really love to do. The first place we usually turn with temptation is what we call rationalization, Let me give you an example. I will take the first temptation of Jesus as an example, and I will put us all in the boat, see if you might handle it like I would. The scene's played out. It's you, it's me, whatever. We've not eaten in 40 days, not 40 hours. Some of us can't make it 40 minutes, (laughs) 40 days without food. And then someone casually reminds us, A, that we're hungry, and B, that we happen to have the power within us to satisfy and feed ourselves. Seems like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? Well, you got the power to make food, you're hungry, you eat, right? That's what we do at home. Now, I'm not sure I would have chosen just bread if I were the one creating the food, but maybe some Cheddar Bay Biscuits from Red Lobster would be okay. I don't know. Either way, the conversation in her head looks like this. God, God, you know I am hungry, right? God, you know I'm hungry. God, you, God, you alone, you have given me the ability to fix my hunger. And God, I know you don't want me to starve to death, do you? Come on, God, you don't want me to starve. You've given me the opportunity to fix this food for myself. So what would be wrong with taking a few of these rocks and turning them into some lovely Texas Roadhouse Rolls? That's where my mind goes. I don't know about you. Did anybody track with me on that rationalization? Because that's what we do. Can you walk down that path? In the end, we're often able to turn temptation around into something maybe even good, right? It might be helpful, at least from a worldly point of view. However, that's not how God views it at all. We are called to rely upon him and him alone, to fully depend upon him, not to lean on our own understanding or even our own abilities in that case, but to seek him in all areas of our life. It all goes back to the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, verse 1, Satan's same attempt to use us today. Did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, if Adam and Eve had pulled Jesus's playbook out and quoted Scripture, then Adam and Eve would have said they wouldn't had to quote Scripture because God had just told them not all that long ago, at least in the scheme of the world. We don't know the exact distance of time, but still. Well, actually, uh, Satan, um, uh, yeah, yeah, he did. As a matter of fact, he said this way, the Lord God took the man, he he put us in the garden to work it and to take care of it, and he told us, he commanded us, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So as a matter of fact, Satan, yes, yes, actually, he did say that. Thanks for asking. Have a nice day. How would things be different today (laughs) if that had been the conversation back then? See, Satan takes the truth, a little bit of it, and he twists it. Man, does our world do that today or what? They take just a little bit of truth and they just twist it out of control. He takes what God makes and he develops a counterfeit version. It might look exactly the same on the outside, right? But it's a fake. It's artificial. It's a fraud. It's not right. And it will lead you away from God and his will for your life. Jesus, like each one of us who call upon the name of the Lord is to rely upon God for his strength and so he does. Strike one for Satan. Verse 5. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and he said to him I will give you all the authority and splendor that has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want for if you worship me it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it's written worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Paul is the author in, in Ephesians as he writes the church in Ephesus, chapter 6, verse 12, that our battle in this world, our fight in this world is against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan has some power in this world. We can't deny that. We've probably all experienced that at some point in our lives, but we have the power within us to fight against it. And I had a period there, When I was writing, I was like, no, no, we don't have the power to fight against it. We have the power to defeat it. There's a difference. The power within you is not just one to fight. It's one to win. You're not going to lose if you tap into that power. Too often, believers, we give Satan way more power than he actually has. So I got to remind you, John 4, 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Don't ever forget that. 1 John 4, 4, he that is in you is greater than he is in the world, period, In discussion. He loses you Win. <laughs> Don't ever forget that. Jesus here is tempted with power, specifically authority, ruling power. Now, ironically, that's something Jesus already possesses. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He will rule on David's throne for all of eternity. He is the ruler over heaven, over earth. So is this really even a temptation to Jesus? Well, yes. How so? It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut. This would be the fast track to having every knee bow and every tongue confess, at least for a moment. This path would bypass the cross. This temptation was an invitation to worship Satan and abandon his loyalty to his father to join forces with Satan. It sounds like an episode of Star Wars, doesn't it? Does it not? (laughs) To join forces with Satan and dismiss himself from the pain, the rejection, the suffering that awaits him. Jesus' rebuke is simple, but very powerful. He's drawing this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning in verse 13, keeping with the theme of the Israelite exodus. But Satan's proposal would have been in direct conflict with the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, end of story. Satan's proposal was a fraud. It was a counterfeit, just like every other thing that he offers each and every one of us. Answering Satan's call was not a path to additional power, but it was a sure way to lose the power that Jesus actually has. You see, for Jesus, there was no easy path. There was no shortcut to messianic glory. And as we take this proposal by Satan and we continue to go through the book of Luke and we see everything that developed through the life of Jesus and we watch the path that Jesus took for your and my redemption, here's what we see. Time after time after time, Jesus chooses the hard way (laughs) because it was the only way for you and I to be brought back to him strike two for satan there's one final temptation it begins in verse nine the devil led him to jerusalem And had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. It's written, Jesus, you know this. He he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They're going to lift you up, Jesus, in their hands. You won't strike your foot against the stone. You'll be just fine, Jesus. Don't worry about it. Jesus answered in verse 12, It is said, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test." (laughs) Then when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Satan changes his strategy just a little bit this time around. Somehow, someway, he appears to know a little bit of God's word. Somehow, someway, actually you'll know why here in just a minute, why Satan would know this verse very specifically here in a minute. He quotes part of Psalm 91, which I'm going to read from here shortly. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And just like his lies today, they contain just a little bit of truth. Has that ever happened to you? Has there ever seemed to be a little benefit to the sin you were tempted with? Or maybe it seemed like, you know what, it wouldn't cause that much harm. It wouldn't hurt anybody. I'll just do it this once. (laughs) Let's take a look at the full passage in Psalm 91 and see what really is said in that Psalm. Beginning in the middle, I believe verse nine is where we're starting, Psalm 91. If you're not there, please grab it because it's an incredible Psalm. The Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. If you say the Lord is my refuge, no disaster will overtake you or come near your tent. So wait, so the actual passage says that if you believe in God as your protector and your provider then, and dwell within him, then, then he, he won't allow you to fall and stumble. Now that's quite different than what Satan told Jesus and what Satan tells us. In fact, he tells us, hey, just trust me. It'll be okay. Believe in me or, or rely on some element of this world. You don't need to trust God. You don't need to have faith in him. The psalm continues, verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. But that's not the end. Keep listening. You will tread on the lion and on the cobra. You will beat them. You will destroy them. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Now, why does Satan know this verse? Because it kicks him in the face every time it's employed. That's how he knows it. He's smashed every time somebody calls on this passage in their life. He is defeated and overcome. Listen how it continues. Because he loves me, that's us, because you and I love him, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life and satisfy him and show him my salvation. Did you hear that promise from God? You better believe Satan knows this passage. It's in direct correlation to his every attempt on this earth. Because he loves me, I will rescue and protect and be with him and deliver him. That's incredible. That passage, if you don't have that underlined, if you don't have that highlighted in your scriptures, please do. It will help you defeat the evil one. Jesus' rebuke, again, very simple but very powerful. This time, Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, God's protection is absolutely upon those that love him and take refuge in him, the psalm says. But it is not your and my place to put God to the test as to whether or not God might or might not protect us due to our own sinful choices. We are not talking about taking a risk to serve God in some way. We are not talking about taking a risk to show the love of God to someone outside of our comfort zone. No, no, no. We're talking about taking a risk outside of God's will for our lives, outside of his desire for our lives. A great lesson to learn, don't do it. (laughs) Don't test God in those ways. Now, God does actually challenge us to test him in a few other ways in Scripture, if you'd like to know. The most famous one of all I heard almost every Sunday as a kid growing up from Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. It was during the offering meditation of all places. I don't know why. I don't know why he would have read that every week. I love that man by the way. Andy Hertel. He's a great guy. Malachi wrote this. But you ask how are we robbing you? You referring to God. God replies in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, the Lord Almighty says, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. God says, take what's mine anyway, and I've bestowed unto you, and you give it back to me, and just watch what I do. Just watch what I do. Don't hoard it to yourself. Test God in his willingness to show others his love through you. Go ahead, I dare you. Test him in that. Test God in his willingness to reveal himself to you through his word. Test God in that, go right ahead. I guarantee you, he will honor. Test him in his heart for the hurting and for the poor. Test him in that, seek out the hurting and the poor and test God to see how he can use you in those areas. Test him in regards to those that are caught up in sin and addiction. Test God. God, do you really want me to go to that person? Just test him. Go ahead and just go. See what happens. Test him in his desire for you and I to serve the widow, to serve the orphan. Maybe in our world, the orphan is now a foster child. Test him in that. Go ahead. See what he does in those areas of life. Jesus, after fasting for 40 days, he resists these attempts of the evil one to disrupt God's plan for salvation for all of mankind. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left them until an inopportune time, it says. Is that not exactly what Satan does to us? He waits for us to be alone to be separated from the body of Christ, to be separated from our family, to be separated from the word of God, to be separated from the time we should be praying when we're all alone or we're with the wrong people. Well, then Satan finds his way to creep right back in. So what do we have to do? We have to continually resist these attempts of the evil one to catch us off guard. We must follow the example of the life of Jesus. He shows us, Luke reveals to us how we can be victorious over temptation. We gotta use the same two things that Jesus used. Number one, the power of the Holy Spirit within us and number two, the word of God, the scriptures. God has given them, them to us in so many forms and fashions. It's incredible in the world that we live. We must relearn to rely upon the spirit of God to protect us and to guide us and to give us discernment in every choice, every decision, every moment of our everyday lives. And we must be in the word of God daily, preparing for the attacks that will come. And it doesn't matter your age at all. I was listening to a sermon. This isn't even in the notes. I was was listening to a sermon the other day, and it was a group of pastors. And then there was an older gentleman that had joined them as kind of the sage of the group, you know, the one giving wisdom and things. And he was talking about life and he just seemed to have all of it together. He was an older gentleman. Just everything, in his life just seemed to be perfect. And one of the pastors asked that, that gentleman a question. He said, hey, I just want to know I'm a young pastor, whatever. What, what part of your life did you finally overcome this temptation? It was a very specific one. He said, when, when in life did you overcome that one? Because I'm still struggling with that one. And the old man goes, I'll let you know when I overcome it. Some things never change. It's who we are. Many times we'll say things like, I have no idea where that temptation came from. No idea what caused that. Don't know why I was tempted by it. Well, if we're willing to handle the truth, the half-brother of Jesus, James, tells us the truth when it comes to temptation. Chapter one, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us is tempted when? When? When we are dragged away by our own evil desires and enticed. And then that desire, as it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Yes, if we're willing to admit it, it is always our fault. I'm at fault when I Am tempted. I get myself into these things. No one forces me there. My thoughts, my desires, my actions take me to that place. And for the record, Satan is still a liar. Amen. There are consequences to sin. And the greatest consequence of all is death. But we're not talking about a physical death. We're talking about the spiritual death, eternal separation from our Creator. Remember that original lie all the way back? James is the end of the Bible, Genesis at the very beginning. Did God really say that you would die? <laughs> Actually, yes. And James at the end of the Word of God confirms it. But thank you, Jesus, there is grace. There is forgiveness. There is a way out of temptation when you find yourself in it. I love this passage. I would share it with students all the time, naively thinking it was students that deal with temptation. You know what? It's not students, it's every human being. 1 Corinthians 1012. I know. There's a lot of verses today. And so tomorrow morning you're like, man, I don't remember that. Just email me. I'll email you a copy of the text. You can have it. 1 Corinthians 10 12. So you think you're standing firm, you're confident, you're proud, be careful. Don't fall. Because no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Yes, we all share in the same life experience, but our God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's the quote that everybody takes out and says, hey, God won't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. Absolutely. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. He will provide the way out. You can't find it. You can't do it on your own. God alone will provide the way out for you so that you can endure it. The only way we can resist that temptation is by finding that way that God has placed in our path to get off that path. Our God is faithful. He will always provide a way out. Now, some might say, I was on this path of temptation and I gave in and there was no path along the way. I dare you to go back and try to walk backwards back that path and not see those off ramps. That existed. God gave you an escape hatch. He gave you a parachute. Have you ever seen someone be ejected with the eject button from an aircraft? That's intense. That's hard. And you usually get injured as a result of hitting that eject button. How serious, how extreme does it need to be for your situation in life? Along that path to sin, God will give you a chance after chance after chance to choose him on the right path, to pursue him, to avoid the trap. Why? Because he knows the outcome. He knows where you're headed and he doesn't want you to get hurt. Did you know that? He has no desire for you to suffer that injury at the end of that path, whatever it may be. He doesn't want your family hurt. He knows there is a better way. The opening question of this sermon, if you will, was did Jesus pass the test? Well, let's ask ourselves, are we passing the test? God is not tempting us. We're tempting ourselves but without the spirit and his word, word in front of us, man, we're vulnerable, we're at risk. Where are we struggling right now? What temptation has seized you? It might be a temptation right now that's just to give in to the evil in this world all around us, the negativity, the, just the terrible things that people say online and everything else, to doubt everything and just to question everything and just to be grumpy all the time. You know, that's a temptation from the evil one to act that way. We're supposed to be full of the joy of the Lord. No one can steal that joy. We have to give it away. Why are we letting the world take that from us? Why are we handing it over to the world? Maybe you've already given in to those temptations. You know what? If you did, it's okay. God welcomes you back. Repent today. Repent today and ask and receive the forgiveness of God. Maybe you're in the heat of the battle right now and you need some reinforcements in your life. You know what? That's why we're here. There's so many people here that would love to pray with you as you're going through this battle in your life. Come forward today and allow us to do that. Maybe, maybe you're like, you know what? Temptation is a huge thing for me in this moment, but I'm kind of ready to test God. I'm kind of ready to take a step out on faith, is what we call that, and test God in some of those areas that he desires me to be tested in. I'm ready to test God and I'm ready to offer back to him what is rightfully his anyway. I'm ready to start giving. I'm ready to start tithing. I'm ready to go out and and talk with people in love. I'm ready to meet the needs of those people around me. I'm ready to test God in those ways in my life. Man, would you come and let us pray for you as you begin that ministry, as you begin that mission in your life? Don't do it alone. Have a group of brothers and sisters holding you accountable, helping you through that process. Maybe they have the same passion that God's placed in you today. This is a family to go through life together. We're grateful that you're here. Father God, your words are so powerful, so powerful that they literally face-to-face defeat Satan right to his face. I love the fact that Satan tries to quote scripture knowing what the scripture actually says. It's incredible that Jesus just throws those simple verses back in the face of Satan and says, no, no, it's very simple to defeat you. This is how it is to be. We don't live on bread alone. We should live on every word that comes from our Father. We should have no other God, but our God. Father, we shouldn't test you in our ways, in our choices. Father, we should follow your will for our lives. We should seek your word for advice, for direction. Father, if there are people today that are struggling with temptation, maybe a lifelong follower of Jesus that, that just can't get past this hurdle. Father, you're there for them. You have what they need. They just need to come and ask you for it. Father, if they've not given in yet and they're, they're on that road, Father, give them that escape ramp today. Make it be a phone call, an email, a a conversation with someone that immediately guides them in your direction. If they've already given in to that temptation, Father, right now, with your spirit, move in their lives and let them know that they can be forgiven. They can be restored, that you have a purpose and a plan for them that's beyond anything they could ever imagine. Father, you love them dearly in spite of what they might have done. It can be forgiven. And Father, if there's anyone here today that is in a desire, they have a, they'd like to test you in some of the ways that you promise you will be faithful, then Father God, let them step forward and do that. Let us gather around them and pray for those people that want to offer themselves and their lives to you in a new way. Father, we love you. We thank you for your presence here with us as we worship. In Jesus' name we pray.